Well, I'd like to begin by thanking Mark Intner for filling the pulpit for me last week. Uh, I was sick, and uh, he filled in. I felt terrible asking him last minute. I asked him on Thursday, which is kind of last minute, to ask somebody to fill the pulpit, and he was already teaching Sunday school. Uh, but uh, I want to thank him for filling the pulpit for me. I found his exposition of Psalm 22 encouraging, but I also really appreciated his explanation of the difference between lament and complaint. I don't know about you, but I found that very helpful. And he's in Ohio today with Gail uh, visiting his mom, uh, but Mark, I want to thank you for filling the pulpit for me and helping uh, me and helping our congregation in our hour of need. Well, please turn in your Bible to First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, I, I want to go here as sort of a cross-reference in the middle of our Isaiah series, uh, because two Sundays ago, I finished uh, a five-week study through Isaiah 53, uh, and the main theme of Isaiah 53 was the good news that the Lord's Messiah will come to die a sacrificial death for sinners. Uh, it's, uh, Isaiah 53 is all about the gospel, and one of the results of having our iniquities carried away by the Lord's servant in Isaiah 53 is that we're given a greater capacity to love others, which is exactly what 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 talks about. So, this is almost like a, I intend this as an extended cross-reference uh, from Isaiah 53. And as you'll see, I was looking for a passage in the New Testament that would deal with what are the implications of this glorious gospel that we just spent five weeks looking at in Isaiah. There's multiple implications that the New Testament talks about, and uh, this was uh, one of them I wanted to call your attention to. And uh, honestly, when I did it, I chose the passage because it talks about the implication of us being freed from our self-love so that we can better love others. And uh, honestly, I, I wasn't trying to find a cross-reference in the New Testament where the apostle quotes Isaiah, but we can't get away from Isaiah today because uh, Peter quotes Isaiah in this section. So, uh, even though we're out of Isaiah, we're going to be right back in Isaiah because the apostle quotes it. And, uh, and so, today is all about uh, thinking through how we can wisely love others as a result of uh, the love that God has already shown to us. And uh, maybe I could illustrate it for you this way. When I was in college, I took a class called Critical Thinking and Problem Solving. It was this gen ed math class that everybody had to take. And uh, uh, one day, the professor came in and gave us an exam, and he said in a very deliberate manner, please follow the directions. And uh, he didn't normally say that. I thought that was weird. And he handed out this exam, and it was a little bit intimidating because the exam was multiple pages all stapled together, and, it, we, and we knew it was a timed exam. It was like a 45-minute timed exam, and uh, it was a little bit intimidating. So uh, I looked down, and uh, the first direction was to put your name on the test. The second direction at the top of the exam was to read the exam in its entirety, before you start answering any of the questions. And as you look through the exam, many of them were math questions, many of them were word problems with multiple steps that you would have to work out. And, uh, and so most of us, myself included, we just, you know, we, we perused the exam, you know, we sort of scanned it and then started in because I was afraid that I wasn't going to have enough time to finish. 
And one of the things I noticed as I was taking the exam is that some of the people around me within like the first five, ten minutes uh, were done. Like they put their pencils down and they were just like waiting there for the time. You know, they were pulling out books from other classes to work on other homework. And, uh, and the thing about it was uh, the ones around me who did that, they were not necessarily A-plus students. These were not like the best people at math right? So, the idea they got done early was a little suspicious. And so, I, I, I looked at the exam. I, I actually followed the directions, even though I had started to answer a few of the questions. And the final uh, question on the exam said, if you've read this exam in its entirety and put your name on it, you're finished. And uh, so, the reason that those other students weren't stressed out, uh, the reason that they finished so early is because they had gotten a message that I hadn't received uh, in, and because I wasn't following the directions. And uh, the, the reason they were different wasn't necessarily because they were better students or that they were better at math than the rest of us, but they had received the message. Uh, maybe we could say it this way, applying it to the Christian life. The reason that Christians are different in the world isn't because… Uh, um, we're necessarily more intelligent or more gifted than anybody else, it's because we've received the message of the gospel. We have a different home now. America, as wonderful as it is, is not our forever home, and we have different values. So, we have different practices because of the message of the gospel that we've received. And as we look at the passage we're going to look at this morning, I do want to remind you, since I am transitioning just one week from Isaiah, uh, one of the things to remember about First Peter is that Peter is writing to people who are suffering. Um, I was sharing with an old friend the other day that uh, the, the elders and I have decided after we're done with the Isaiah series, uh, I'm going to preach through uh, Ephesians. And uh, all have been at the church for over nine years by the time we start Ephesians, and it's the first Pauline epistle I'll have preached. And my friend thought that was really weird because here in America, uh, uh, seminary-trained guys like to get out of seminary, and what's the first thing they want to preach? They want to preach Pauline epistles, particularly the book of Romans. But when you look at the church overseas, when you talk to missionaries, when you talk to Christians from other cultures, First Peter is one of their favorites because it deals with the issue of suffering and persecution. It, it feels more close to home to them because of the opposition they face in their culture. And Peter was writing to Christians who were suffering under both government-sponsored persecution and unofficial mockery from the culture uh, that they lived in because the culture around them, the majority culture around them, viewed Christianity as a threat to the unity of the empire that was based in Caesar worship, and they also viewed them as a threat to the common good. One of the bloggers I like to read is Tim Challies, and he's created a film series called Epic, which I recommend to you. And what he does in this film series, Epic, is he travels to different countries of the world, and he finds uh, artifacts, objects uh, from the story of Christianity that show it spread throughout the world and celebrate the gospel. And in his episode on Rome, he goes to the Palatine Hill in Rome and shows the Alexa Minos Graffito. And uh, I have a picture of that for you. Uh, this is the Alexa Minos Graffito. On the left, uh, you have a picture of it. Uh, and on, 
Well, yeah, yeah, your left. And then on the right, uh, on the right, uh, you have a picture of it in relief uh, so that you can see what's going on there. The significance of this graffiti is that it is the first known historical example of a depiction of the cross. And uh, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you this, but the fact that the person who made this uh, depicts Jesus with the head of a donkey, that's, that's like not complimentary, right? Uh, this, and the inscription, which uh, is just sort of scribbled in there, it says, Alex, Aleximenos worships his God. It's a mockery of an early Christian named Aleximenos. Uh, it's ridiculing the idea that anyone would be dumb enough to worship a so-called God who was so weak that He got crucified on a Roman cross. And I've uh, given this illustration, I've shown this, uh, just to make the point that the persecution that Peter's readers was fa- were facing, it wasn't just government-sponsored persecution, it was also informal persecution uh, that came in the form of mockery from the culture around them. And so, when Peter wrote this letter that we call First Peter, he wrote it to comfort first-century Christians who were being mocked, uh, first-century Christians who were facing problems from the government. And, uh, and one of the things he does that I think shows a lot of pastoral wisdom is that he gives comforts, he gives his people hope, but he also gives them marching orders. He also gives them instructions. And there's a lot of wisdom in that because when we suffer, you and I tend to circle the wagons and look out for number one. And we can become all too self-protective, all too self-focused, especially if the suffering uh, is elongated, and it can create a downward spiral because we withdraw from others, we withdraw from loving service, we focus on ourselves, maybe to find some comfort and some pleasure in life in the middle of our suffering. Uh, we, we turn to earthly pleasures, maybe we're even willing to commit sin uh, with some of them, and then you add that sin on top of the way we've isolated ourselves, and it just creates a downward spiral. And so, what Peter does is he calls these Christians who are suffering to still participate in the plan of God even in the middle of their suffering. And that's not just for God's glory. That's not just for the good of other people. That's for the good of their own souls. Suffering doesn't change the game. Uh, The call to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, the call to fix your hope on Christ's return, those calls are still applicable uh, even when you're not in the middle of well-being and ease. And so, uh, we can be weak in our zeal, especially in the middle of suffering. We can be fickle in our faith, and so we need to hear these words of instruction this morning. Uh, Let's read the text together. And since we've been so long in Isaiah, I want to begin by reading the text in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to begin all the way back in verse 10, because verse 10 talks about the salvation that prophets like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. And so, I want to start way back there, and we'll read uh, from verse 10 all the way to the end of chapter 1. Starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, we read, "'As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What did we see in Isaiah 53? 
First suffering, then glory, right? And that's exactly what you have here. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, because of this salvation, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of living inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And here's the paragraph I want to look at today. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. So in First Peter, Peter begins his letter with the doxology of praise for God's wisdom and love in our salvation. And then he turns to talk about the moral implications of the gospel, starting in verse 13. And the first instruction he gives us is to fix our hope completely on the grace that we'll receive when Christ returns. Uh, he also exhorts us to be holy as our heavenly Father is holy. That's verses 13 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 21, he reminds us that even though we have become sons and daughters of God, our heavenly Father is also an impartial judge, and we still need to live with a reverential fear of Him during our time here on earth. And then he gives one more command to finish this chapter. It's in verse 22. He gives a command to love one another, and then he gives a couple of supports and encouragements that show us the resources we have available to us to help us obey the command. Let's look first at the command, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The command is love one another. And perhaps there's no command more important for us to hear than the call to love others, because even in our sufferings, we are still called to love others. Even if our sufferings uh, have put us in a position where our mobility and our availability is limited, there are still uh, important and practical ways we can love others. We're called to incarnate the love of Christ by being His hands and feet to show His love to others. We have the high calling of making His invisible love visible through loving the people who are in our lives. And uh, you can be the touch of His hand 
you can demonstrate His goodness. You can reflect His patience. You can grant uh, forgiveness to others just as He has forgiven you. Uh, One of the reasons God has placed you in the situation that you now find yourself in is to be an instrument of His transforming grace and His love in the lives of the unique circle of family and friends that you have. That's your calling. And it's your calling not just because love is a wonderful thing, but because loving others reflects the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love is the most powerful, transforming uh, thing in the universe, in the cosmos. And He invites you to participate in His love by loving others with the love you've already received through Him. Now, it's a common thing for uh, sinful people and cultures, which is everyone and every culture since the fall into sin, it's a common thing for people and cultures to be confused about what exactly love is. We are not the first culture uh, to have counterfeit versions of love floating around and and counterfeit ideas of love floating around uh, our nation. One of the faulty concepts of love making the rounds right now is this one. Maybe you've heard it. Love is love which means that the meaning behind that statement is this. Any definition of love is just as legitimate as any other definition of love. So, if someone defines love in a way where you encourage and affirm and celebrate the decisions another person is making, even if those decisions are self-defeating and self-destructive, that's still a form of love. It's ridiculous. On its face, it is a ridiculous claim because love is willing to warn people if they're headed towards danger. Love is willing to ask unpopular questions. Sometimes the way to best love a person is not by affirming them, but by disagreeing with them. Uh, As confused as our culture is, uh, having said that, though, as, as, as confused as our culture is, we're not the first ones to be confused. This is a problem endemic to all cultures, to all people in all times of history. And so, the Apostle Peter does something very helpful. Attached to this command to love others, he gives a description of what true love looks like so that the love he's talking about comes to us well-defined, and He gives us a very clear target that we can aim at as we think about how we could best uh, love others. And the first description of true love that He gives is that it's sincere. It's a genuine, authentic love. The call to this kind of love goes beyond American politeness and niceness. I think sometimes maybe as Americans we think that if I'm just polite to other people and I'm nice, then it'll mean I'm a loving person. And certainly, you should want to be polite. You shouldn't be a mean person. Being nice makes public discourse and getting work done a lot more enjoyable. But this love is so much more. Uh, It is so much more than being nice. It's a sincere love. And it's not just giving… One of the conceptions of love that's been very popular in our culture for over a generation now is what I would call the idea of unconditional positive affirmation, that regardless of what you do or what decisions you're, make, uh, you're making, I give you unconditional affirmation. Um, and that's not helpful, right? Uh, there are times when warning someone about the danger they're heading into is the most loving thing to do. There's times where disagreeing with them does more good than affirming them. 
And so, this is love that in a godly way uh, genuinely says what it thinks and believes. Uh, sincerity means not using people to get something you want or seeing them as an obstacle in the way of something you're trying to achieve. Um, and I think Peter gives us sort of a double emphasis on this kind of sincere love when he says at the end of verse 22 that this kind of love is from the heart. Uh, the idea of loving others from the heart is really, that's moving in the same direction as loving them sincerely. So, with this kind of love, I'm not loving you to place you in my debt. I'm not loving you uh, just to get your approval because I'm a relationship junkie and a people pleaser and I need your approval. I'm not loving you because uh, I'm trying to get something out of you. I'm not loving you with mixed motives. I'm loving you because I want to be a part of God's good work in your life. It's a sincere love. Uh, it's a, a sincere love that says, in essence, I've been loved by God. I am being presently loved by God. I will be loved by God into eternity future, and now I want to love you as well. It's a sincere, a sincere love. Second, this love that Peter writes about is a brotherly love. I say that because the Greek word for love there in verse 22 is the, the Greek word Philadelphia, which talks about uh, a family love, br brotherly love, uh, uh, familial love. Now, the moment I say familial love, I want to clarify that uh, this is the kind of love that I think we all instinctively know is the ideal uh, kind of love that families should have, but in practice, most of our families are dysfunctional. And so, I just want to make it clear, when we talk about this familial love, we're not talking about some kind of weird dysfunctional family love. We're talking about a sincere brotherly, sisterly love, not the kind of love where brothers are constantly competitive with each other and trying to one-up each other, not the kind of familial situation where sisters are constantly arguing with each other. No, no, no. This is the kind of brotherly and sisterly love where there's a sincere affection for each other as family. And the imagery of Philadelphia, because it literally translates, uh, translated means brotherly love, the idea is not so much parental love, although that's a wonderful picture of love, right? God is our heavenly Father. The picture of brotherly love is more of a level playing field, uh, a, a, a love that comes alongside another person, a love where we uh, both need to give and receive love as equals at the foot of the cross. And I would confess to you as your pastor, I want to do a better job loving you, and I also need your brotherly love, right? I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. I still haven't arrived, and I need your help. Um, this is a love that comes alongside one another where we help each other. The third word that defines this kind of love is the word fervently. Now, some of your Bible translations probably use the word earnestly as well. Uh, the idea is zealous. It's a zealous kind of love. And the implication of that is that it's a love that is motivated and self-starting and takes some initiative, right? This is the kind of love that isn't waiting around for the church to design a program uh, or uh, for uh, waiting around for some opportunity to make itself obvious. Uh, this is the kind of love that has its eyes up and its ears open and its, its heart open as well to meet needs 
that it sees. This is a proactive love. Uh, This is the kind of love that checks in on others even when they're not asking for help, or maybe they're not the most communicative person, but you're going to check in on them anyway out of love. And then fourth, Peter uses a phrase that defines this love, and that phrase is one another. Uh, And you, you guys know this. There's a lot of one another commands in the New Testament. Well, that phrase, one another, is a reminder about the importance of living in Christian community. You can't fulfill the command that Peter is giving here unless you're a meaningfully involved member of a local church building friendships in the local church God has called you to. Uh, You can't fulfill this command to love if you isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ. To fulfill the command, uh, you have to have relationships with other believers. So, you fulfill this command best when you serve uh, others and love others. I would suggest to you that you fulfill the command best when you are also serving in your local church family. Uh, a local church is like a family where there are chores to be done, right? That there is work that has to happen. You think about even this worship service, right? The praise team practice. We have uh, audio-visual guys doing work right now up in the balcony. Uh, there's uh, nursery workers. There's all kinds of things that need to get done. Uh, one of the things that Brooke and I are doing, and I would confess Brooke does a better job of this than I do, is uh, we're training our children. They're part of a family, and so they rotate through, uh, you know, each night one of them sets the table, and then after dinner one of them cleans up the table and scrapes the plates, and then a third one, we have three children, the third one washes the dishes, and they all rotate. Now, what's the motive behind that? Why are we doing that? Is it because Brooke and I are getting a little bit older, and we were like, wow, it would sure be nice to have some help. And these kids, you know, every scrap of food they eat, we had to buy, so we're going to put them to work so that we can go sit and watch TV while they clean. The... No, that's not what's going on. The heart, Brooke and I don't mind serving our children. We'd be happy to keep washing the dishes for them as an act of love to them. But we think it's wiser for them to learn by way of experience that you're part of a family, and family life, it's like, it's not this experience where everybody else does all this work to make the house nice and so that you have clean clothes and, you know, the place gets vacuumed once a week and you just sit there and entertain yourselves and don't lift a finger. We're trying to teach them that part of family life is you pitching in. And let me be candid, there are a few of you here who are official members of Grace Fellowship Church, but you don't really serve in any particular way, and we need your help. There's a lot to get done, and I'm, this isn't like, I'm not mingling the announcement time uh, with my sermon, uh, just begging for someone to help with a particular ministry. I'm just saying there's a lot of ministries we have going on here. There's a lot we're trying to accomplish, and we need your help pitch in, help us, ask us if, if, you, if there's a particular way that, uh, if there's no particular way that seems obvious that you'd like to serve in, come talk to us. We'll give you a bunch of choices, uh, but serve in your local church family. That's one of the ways you can do a good job loving other believers, loving one another by sacrificing your time and your energy. So, the command of the passage then is to love one another sincerely with brotherly affection, fervently from the heart in practical ways. Now, let's be honest. 
This is both helpful. I, I mean, I hope you feel this. It's both helpful, but it's also intimidating. And here's why. It's helpful because having defined what this kind of love is, we now have a clear target to aim at, right? It's not some nebulous, amorphous definition of love. So, this is actually very helpful what Peter's done. But I hope you feel that it is somewhat intimidating, right? Because we all still are beset by self-love. We can still be very selfish. And loving each other uh, in the way that Peter calls us to here I think is very intimidating because I don't know about you, but I'll admit that my love is not always as fervent as it should be, right? Uh, sometimes I start off with a sincere love, but by the end of the whole thing, I become aware that I had mixed motives in serving that other person the way I was supposed to serve them. And so I look at all these definitions and think, well, that doesn't always mark my love. And I need help. And so, I think some of what's going on here is that what Peter says should drive each of us to say, Lord, I admit I don't live up to this standard. Please help me. Please give me the grace to love other people in the way that Peter describes. And if that's your prayer and if that's your desire, I do want to encourage you the passage gives you um, some very practical help. It makes you aware of some very practical resources you have for loving others. The first help is found in verse 22. Peter says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Now, he is saying something that is a very New Testament way of talking about the gospel that is not a way that we refer to the gospel as American Christians. Let me explain it. Peter is not saying here that by obeying some Bible rules, you have therefore purified your soul uh, by yourself, right? That's not what's going on here. The word obedience in the New Testament is often used as a synonym for faith. And what the New Testament teaches is that the gospel is not just good news that we should embrace and then offer to other people. The New Testament is clear that the, the gospel is objective truth that everyone needs to bow the knee to. And so, when it talks about being uh, uh, obedient to the truth, what he's saying is, you became obedient to the gospel by repenting of your sin and following Jesus, right? The gospel, the gospel is not just a, a set of historical truth claims we believe. The gospel is a person we follow. And he's saying, look, you became obedient to following the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you did that, it purified your soul. And that word for purified at the beginning of verse 22, it's in the perfect tense, which in Greek signifies a past action that has ongoing consequences. So, the idea isn't that uh, when you turn to Christ in the gospel, your soul was purified. The idea is that when you turn to Christ, your soul was purified, and you in continue to enjoy a kind of purity from the gospel into the present moment that gives you new capabilities in the present. God explains it this way through the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. He says to Ezekiel, uh, I will, a future day is coming when I will sprinkle clean water on you, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the salvation that God gives doesn't just purify and cleanse us according to what God says to Ezekiel. He also puts the Holy Spirit within us and transforms our hearts so that we have a growing track record of obedience to God's law, but so that we can also have a growing capacity to love others. Maybe I could illustrate it for you this way. Um, Imagine, and I know some of you in here have actually done this, imagine for a moment that you you had some money, this will be a pleasant a pleasant uh, uh, daydream here. Imagine for a moment you have some money, and you don't want to live in town. You want to live out in the country, and so you buy a parcel of land out in Spotsylvania. You buy a wooded lot out in Spotsylvania, and you're going to build a home uh, out in the country on uh, a number of acres of land. That's something you've always kind of dreamed about. Well, what's the first thing you're going to do before you start building this custom country home that you're going to build? you're going to cut down trees, you're going to clear the lot, or at least the section of the lot you want to build the house on, so that you have space to build the house, right? Well, the gospel does something similar in the heart. When you became obedient to the gospel, there was a process that happened. You became aware of your sin. Before, you were either blind to it or you were aware of your sin. You knew it was there, but you tended to justify it or make excuses for it, or blame it on others, or admit, yeah, it's bad, but not really own up to how bad it really was. Uh, You know, you kind of went on a campaign to portray it as half as bad as it really was. But once you, when you came to Christ, you saw your sin for what it was, you grieved over it, you turned to Christ in, uh, there was a conviction, and that conviction led you to agree with God about your sin so that you were no longer making excuses, you were no longer shifting the blame, you were no longer justifying it, you agreed with God about your sin. That's actually what, that's the, that is the literal meaning of the Greek word for confession, is that you are agreeing with God about what He says about your sin, and you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart that results in changed actions. I changed from living like I'm the center of the universe and living for my will to be done, uh, right, to living for God's kingdom and His will to be done. And so, what that repentance then does is this. It clears the lot of my heart so that I have room to love other people and not just be consumed by love of self. And so, Peter is actually giving you an encouragement here. In fact, when you look at the passage again, he's giving you the encouragement even before he gives the command. And the encouragement is that the, uh, the past obedience to the gospel in your life has actually purified you and given you a new capacity to love others in a way that you never could have loved them while you were still estranged from God. But there's even more help to be had. Look at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The second help and support we have is that we have been born again, which I know it's, it's kind of the same thing as the gospel, but here he looks at the gospel from a different angle. And notice that he uses the word seed. Uh, seed represents a, represents a source of life. This is the language of reproduction, right? We could say it this way. 
biologically speaking, you are the product of the seed of your father and the egg of your mother. But in contrast to their physical seed, which produced an amazing life, but a life form that will eventually die, in contrast to that, your heavenly Father has put any, He has initiated in you an undying seed, an undying eternal kind of life when you were born again. So don't treat being born again lightly. It gives you hope, and it also gives you a new capacity to love. The seed of the new birth is imperishable, which means your soul is imperishable, which means you have hope. You've been connected to something eternal and life-giving that will never go away. Uh, Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus. If you remember in John 3, there's this scene where a Pharisee and member of the Sanhedrin comes to Jesus at night to ask Him some questions. And, and for His part, this particular Pharisee is teachable, okay? He's humble. He, he's asking honest questions, and he is willing to learn from Jesus, which is different than most of the interactions Jesus has with the Pharisees, right? And when you think about, just stop and think about it from the perspective of our Lord, our Lord could have said a lot of things to Nicodemus that were all true, right? He could have said, Nicodemus, you know, the problem with you Pharisees is that you add your own man-made laws to the law of Moses, uh, and you heap up burdens people can't keep, and you're distracting them from the law anyway. And there are other portions in Scripture, other moments where Jesus does say that, but that's not what He says to Nicodemus. He could have also said, Nicodemus, uh, the problem with you guys is that you look at the law of Moses, and you think you've actually kept it. Like, you look at the mirror of God's law, and you think that your reflection is handsome, when in reality, when you look at the law of God, you should see that you don't live up to it, and you need, you need a Savior, right? That Jesus could have said that to Nicodemus. But what does He choose to say in that situation, in that moment to Nicodemus? Well, in essence, He says, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, right? The problem here is that you need new spiritual life because the new birth gives eternal life that transforms you so that you can start living for the plans and purposes of God. That's what Jesus says in essence. Now, notice what Peter does next here. This eternal seed he describes uh, through which you've been born again, he says, he tells you what the seed is. It's the enduring Word of God. Now, by calling God's Word living, he calls it living in verse 23 and enduring, by calling it living, he's tapping into the idea that the Word of God is living and active in the lives of people, that the Holy Spirit uses it in an amazing way to get people's attention and change their lives in life-rearranging, life-transforming ways. And if you've been around the church for a number of years, you would anticipate that now is the perfect time for pastor to go to the verse in Hebrews that talks about how the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? But I'm not going to go there, and here's the reason why. The other hallmark of this seed of the Word of God that, that he talks about is that it's enduring, and he spends like the next few verses camping out on enduring. That's his emphasis. It's living, but he wants to emphasize that it's enduring here, and so I want to emphasize what Peter emphasizes. He spends the next two verses elaborating on the word's enduring quality, and he does so by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Uh, he says, 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter quotes Isaiah 40, and there's a context uh, to that. In 1 Peter, the context is that Peter has called uh, his readers chosen exiles. They're, they're living in exile from their heavenly home, which is sort of like the Babylonian exile that Isaiah prophesies about. And uh, Isaiah 40 is really strategic in the book of Isaiah because in Isaiah chapter 39, Isaiah gives the first ever prophecy in the Old Testament of a coming Babylonian captivity. Uh, and the prophecy is that the nation of Judah is going to be defeated in battle. Uh, their city, their capital city is going to be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. They'll be taken away as slaves to Babylon. And when you read Isaiah, you become aware, I hope you've seen this as we've gone through it together uh, over the last year, that in Isaiah you read certain chapters, and it's obvious the relevance of what Isaiah has to his generation but you read it and you think, you know, I think this has even more relevance if you're a Jewish person living 200 years later in the middle of the captivity, right? Uh, some of His words are even more relevant to the, to the generation of the captivity than they were to the first generation He gave them to. Uh, there's a future generation of Judah that's going to be stuck in Babylon, and they're going to wonder if they're ever going to be free again. They're going to wonder what other nation could possibly defeat these guys and set us free. And part of what Isaiah's meaning is, is this, look, the Babylonian empire that looks so great to you and so unstoppable, it's like grass. Uh, the same could be said for Peter's day of the Roman empire. The Roman empire looked unstoppable, but you and I know, based on history, that the Roman empire perished, right? It was like a flower that sprang up in the spring, but by midsummer it had wilted and faded away. But Peter's use of Isaiah 40, it's more than just a comfort, you know, that this too, this terrible thing shall pass. It's more than just that. It's also a warning about the danger of renouncing our faith in the middle of persecution. Um, you could renounce Christ, and our culture will accept you. Not only will they accept you, if you will publish a deconversion story that makes Christians look silly and dumb, they'll celebrate you for it, right? Uh, publish your deconversion story, and they'll applaud you for it. But the problem with that is that apart from Christ, all those people applauding you, they'll fade away. This is one of the things in Scripture uh, that, that's very clear uh, the fear of man, the desire for other people's approval, the craving for acceptance and being celebrated and being popular, there's a foolishness to it because of death. Death makes a mockery out of the desire for men's approval because all those people pass away. As a chosen exile living in America, uh, I sympathize with you that the headlines are often discouraging, right? Uh, Christianity doesn't seem to be in the ascent in our culture. Uh, Christianity is often portrayed by the media or in art like television and movies, either as something silly to believe in or passe or bigoted. But all those people who portray us as being on the wrong side of history, they're like grass. They're like the wildflowers of the field. All the celebrities and all the journalists and all the authors that seem so important today 
they will wither. But the gospel that was preached to you will endure. And in the end, God will vindicate those who've repented and placed their faith in Him. A day is coming when Alexa Minos will appear to be the wisest man in the Roman Empire. The Word of God endures to all generations. It's been preached to you who've heard the gospel so that you could be born again, and having been born again, so that you could have a greater capacity to love others. I entitled this sermon, Love One Another, but I should have entitled it, Love Because You've Been Born Again, or Love Since You've Been Born Again. That would have been a better title for it. Uh, because even born again, verse 23, that word born again is in the present tense, uh, sorry, the perfect tense, just like purified was in verse 22. And again, the perfect tense uh, carries the idea of a past action with ongoing consequences. The fact that God caused you to be born again in the past carries with it the present consequence that you have a capacity to love others that would have been impossible before you were reconciled to God. God has rescued you by His love. He's enabled you to now live a life of love right here, right now, in this church, in this city, and with the unique family that God has given you. And let's admit it, there is a great need for love that is sincere and brotherly and fervent and from the heart in our church and in our city and in our families. You've been given the resources. You've been equipped to love well by God's regenerating, transforming work in your life. And so, with the Spirit's help, brothers and sisters, fervently love one another from the heart. Let's pray.